everyone. Welcome to another Ruby Rogues episode. I'm David Kimura, and today on our panel, we have Andrew Mason. Hello from Wilmington, North Carolina. And we have a special guest, Paul Tarjan. Hello from Belmont, California. All right. So I guess I should throw I'm in Atlanta, Georgia. So just so we're all on a consistent page there. <laughs> this episode is sponsored by Sentry.io. Recently, I came across a great tool for tracking and monitoring problems in my apps. Then I asked them if they wanted to sponsor the show and allow me to share my experience with you. Sentry provides a terrific interface for keeping track of what's going on with my app. It also tracks releases so I can tell if what I deployed makes things better or worse. They give you full stack traces and as much information as possible about the situation when the error occurred to help you track down the errors. Plus, one thing I love, you can customize the context provided by Sentry. So, if you're looking for specific information about the request, you can provide it. It automatically scrubs passwords and secure information, and you can customize the scrubbing as well. Finally, it has a user feedback system built in that you can use to get information from your users. Oh, and I also love that they support open source to the point where they actually open source Sentry if you want to self-host it. Use the code DEVCHAT at Sentry.io to get two months free on Sentry's small plan. That's code DEVCHAT at Sentry.io. So, Paul, tell us a bit about yourself. Uh, sure. So, uh, I'm at Stripe. I work on developer productivity. I'm the tech lead on the project. We are a group of about 45 people nowadays that are in, totally internally focused on making the developer experience being at Stripe as nice as possible so that Stripe can make your life as nice as possible. I've been here about three and a half years doing developer productivity the whole time. Uh, before this, I had my own company for a year. <laughs> Startups are hard. <laughs> and then before that, I was at Facebook for five years working on lots of stuff. I started as a JavaScript HTML engineer and then fell down the stack and ended up down in the compiler. So worked on a lot of stuff uh, while I was there. And yeah, a couple other places before that, not as notable. Awesome. Well, I'm definitely a big fan of Stripe over crappier services like PayPal. (laughs) We appreciate that. (laughs) Big kudos to you guys. So today we've asked you to come on to talk about Sorbit. Would you mind giving us a high-level overview of what Sorbit is? Sure. We pronounce it sorbet. Maybe I'm, I'm Canadian originally, so my, my <laughs> French accent can, can drive a little bit more in there. It's, it's named after the, the delicious dessert. So yeah, sorbet is a gradual type checker for Ruby. So what that means is it is a like side program that you can run that, that analyzes your source code and tries to infer all of the types and take all the annotations that you put in and figure out if your code is typed sound and find any bugs and, and, and early warn you of any problems without actually running any of your code. Think of it as very similar to like TypeScript for JavaScript or MyPy for Python or Hack for PHP. Like, like these, adding a gradual type system onto an untyped language is just what we did with Sorbet. Awesome. And why would someone be interested in something like that? I mean, we at Stripe desperately needed it, right? It's, it's As a code base grows larger and larger, the interfaces become much, much more important uh, between the components, right? Like when you're a little you know, two-person code base, uh, it's not a big deal if, if your types between your method calls are not as strongly encoded. But as you, know, you hit a, a thousand-person company, you, you want to understand how all your interfaces hook up together. So adding an annotation system was really important to us. So we built a runtime system first. And then being able to statically detect any problems before the code has to be tested or goes out, it just drastically increases developer productivity, right? Instead of having to push up to CI and get your, your bug, uh, you know, hopefully you wrote a test for it and you notice it uh, in CI, it's much easier if in the editor as you're typing away, it's like, oh, this should be an integer instead of a string. What are you doing? And if it just quickly 
tells you there. It's it's just a magical experience. So we really wanted it at Stripe. Uh, now that it's open source, a ton of other big companies are taking it on and a bunch of other little projects as well too. Awesome. And does it work with just simple data types like integer strings or can it also test Ruby classes? So it's expecting a Ruby class user. Yep, great question. It, it works with both. So uh, the, it, Ruby is actually a really nice standard library system for its, its objects. And we just treat user-generated objects and the standard library all together, right? So you can annotate that this function returns an integer or this function returns my class, or it returns either an integer or my class, right? Like you can, you can annotate however you want using your own names as well as the standard library names. Uh, Ruby has a nice namespacing mechanism so that you, can, uh, you don't have to conflict. You can have your own little integer class too. Yeah, so for anyone listening, if you've ever come across the error, undefined method, whatever, for nil class, this is why something like Sorbet was created. <laughs> Absolutely. Oh my gosh. The moment we launched, we found, that was our number one error that we found, is people not checking for nil, right? Like you think this thing could never, ever return nil, and oh yeah, there's a, there's a possibility. Like array access sometimes returns nil if you're out of the bounds of the array. Most people don't check for that. Uh, or, or, you know, various other shapes of that. Nil checks were our biggest, biggest find uh, at the beginning when we first launched. Awesome. And coming up in Rails, I think 6.1 is Action View Components, which definitely is not Sorbet or Sorbet. I'm sorry. <laughs> no worries. It has some of that hints of just simple objects. So when you create a view class or a view component, you're just passing in and basically type checking uh, certain of the parameters that are coming in that it's an integer or string. Do you see that being a replacement for newer Rails applications that would negate the need for Sorbet? Or is Sorbet really targeted for a different use? Ah, interesting. Unfortunately, I'm not very familiar with the the Rails ecosystem. Um, We don't use it at at Stripe, but I, I think I understand what you're talking about. There's two major components to Sorbet. One is the runtime type checking, and one is the static type checking. So runtime means that it just wraps your function and says, this must be an integer, or this, you know, when I call this method, these are the types that I expect. So it wraps your function, checks the types, calls your function, and then checks the return type on the way out. Right? That's the runtime component that enforces strong boundaries and like guarantees that at runtime your code is working as expected. And then there's the static component, which analyzes your code without running anything at all and checks all of your function calls between itself and makes sure that everything is sound and everything is set up the way that, the way that you expect. So the, the former is, I think, what you're talking about. I think Rails has introduced a, a runtime like enforcement mechanism on the types, and I'm a big fan. I'm a huge fan of types. Please use them everywhere. They, they are self-documenting and just, just a big fan. So I'm happy to see Rails go in that direction. Uh, the static component is, is something very unique to Sorbet, the, the pre-analysis of the code without actually running it. Yeah, that is really cool. And, you know, I've seen basically like two different types of Ruby code that I've come across over my years of development that are not using something like Sorbet. So they're not doing any kind of type checking. They are either going to raise an error 500 or the Ruby crashes like with the whatever for nil class, or they are doing a begin rescue exception for everything and then just continue on. So you never ever see any errors in your application, but just nothing works properly and you have no why. Yep. We try to uh, discourage that for our engineers at Stripe. 
<laughs> that is, neither of those patterns are the... Uh, you don't really want your API to be doing that when you're trying to make a charge. The one oh, yeah. thing that we do notice is now that we've introduced Sorbet, people choose to write their code in a different manner. If you start annotating your function and you're like, well, it takes a string or an integer or an array of strings or a nil or uh, this user class, you start to think twice about like what your function actually does and you, you break it apart or you rename it or you like make some inheritance hierarchy or something so that like now you have a logical sense of, of the types that flow through your program. So we've noticed that engineers do react once they, once they have a static type checker uh, holding their hand through the development experience. And so I know you guys said you don't use a lot of Rails at Stripe, but can you conceivably hook Sorbet up into a Rails app? Absolutely, yes. So this was actually the biggest hurdle that we wanted to jump over before we open sourced. So we put a couple months into this, and it wasn't that much work. I think it took like nine or ten type annotations around core action record e stuff in order to, to get Sorbet to fully understand a Rails app. So yeah, yeah, you fully deploy it. A bunch of our partners are on Rails. So if you go to sorbet.org and scroll down to the bottom, we've got a couple of, uh, of logos from other companies, and a bunch of them are running Rails. I think uh, CZI actually maintains a Sorbet Rails gem that holds your hand and, and does some auto-generation for you. I, th- I think it takes some of your, your active record encoding things and builds static, builds static type RBIs for their methods that come into existence automatically for you. So, so like, like, for example, the, the static type checker has to see all of your methods in order to help you, right? It has to know that this method is named foo on this class bar, right? Uh, if, if that magically comes into existence because of some annotation or some DSL or, or some like missing methods, or if there's any like magic in your application, Sorbet can't help you. So we have all of these like side procedures that try to materialize uh, a lot of the magic and just show it to Sorbet so that we know and can see all of the methods through your program and understand all of the, the type flows that will be present at runtime. Um, so that we can see it all statically. So there's there's definitely a gem there for Rails to help you do that. Yeah, and I have to say, people who use defined methods, so let's say they have a database of a bunch of different things, like key values, and then they just define method for all these records in the database to be values within your application. I hate that, because if you try to go and debug that, you have no idea where that freaking method is even being created. It's like, it doesn't exist. Is it in one of these gems or what's going on? So it's really annoying. So I think metaprogramming is amazing, but people take it to a point where the application is just not maintainable. Yep. Uh, We've actually found a very interesting thing. Uh, When we materialize the metaprogramming, we kind of like uncover some truths about the application that really helps you work on your code anyways. Right? So you do all this metaprogramming off to the side. No one knows where all the methods are. Then you run like SRB init, like the, the script that Sorbet is there to, to materialize your metaprogramming. And you get a bunch of RBI files written out that actually show what methods are on the object and how many parameters they take and what their names are. And like, like it, it shows you what actually happens under the covers. So it, it's actually pretty useful for a highly metaprogrammed app to just go run Sorbet on it and, and see where all your methods are. Um, it also awesome. helps you like remove a bit of the metaprogramming too. Uh, there's kind of a punch <laughs> list there of like, yeah, you see, there's you know ten thousand lines of metaprogramming results. Uh, maybe t- you know carving that down a little bit might be a little more healthy for your application. Oh, absolutely. 
So I kind of want to shift over into the performance. What is the performance impact of adding Sorbet into a class and doing the type checking? Ah, great question. So we have uh, two modes, with runtime type checking and without. So if you do not opt into runtime type checking, there is zero performance overhead, right? It, the, the types will be erased at runtime. This is similar to, um, similar to like, yeah, maybe I won't go into any of the type theory, but like nothing is used at runtime. The methods are completely opaque. Mm-hmm. And uh, with runtime on, which is actually the mode we run at Stripe, we encourage this because we like to have strong guarantees. We like to be like, this function really takes an integer and is going to throw if you didn't pass it an integer. Like, like we like those strong guarantees. And for us, that's about 4% CPU overhead. So uh, 4% of our CPU is spent in type checking code. And that's totally a price we're willing to pay in order to get the safety that, that Sorbet brings. Okay. Yeah, that's awesome to have some kind of concrete result there to know, like, is it really worth it or not? Yeah, 4% we're happy to pay. When I worked on a similar project at Facebook, uh, Hack, it was the, we paid about 8% in runtime costs to do our runtime type checking. And, and we thought that was totally great. We're very happy to do that. So as long as it's single digits, it feels about right in order to get a bunch of safety. Cool. I got to ask, is Hack a PHP type checking thing? Absolutely. Oh, oh great. Oh, yep. no. I'm glad you heard about it. <laughs> I've heard about it, but it, it, it makes me sad. Yeah, well, I mean, it was the same kind of shape, right? Like Facebook was on PHP and a rewrite is terrible. You never want to do a a full like language rewrite off of your thing. So we're like, well, let's go in and fix the language the best as we can. So we made a very strong subset of the language so that you can't do all the like crazy functions that appear out of nowhere once you access a variable and all, all the like difficult parts of PHP and made like an actually pretty nice subset. And then we extended it with some types uh, and called it hack. So you're just going language to language, adding type checkers. <laughs> I didn't mean to, man. I, I fell into this phase first. I joined Stripe. I didn't know what I was going to work on. And then I looked around. I'm like, wow, we really need a type checker. What's, what's going on here? So I, I spent you know, the last two years, uh, my first two years working there, advocating carefully that we need this, writing a lot of docs, convincing a lot of people, just running the gamut of paying social capital and, and doing the, the convincing. And eventually, yep, we got staffed. We got three of our best engineers to get put on the project. And the three of us just kind of got to plow on it for two years. So no, I did not actually want to jump language to language. It's just a happy accident. So I think a lot of people's experience with type checking you know, could come from something like iOS development. And if you've ever tried to develop an iOS application using Objective-C or Swift, it is a nightmare with the types. Just because, you know... I think both languages are pretty messy to begin with. So I think when I initially heard of Sorbet coming out, I was like, oh dear, it's going the direction of Swift. But having played around with it a bit and seen it a bit, I'm like, okay, this this is acceptable. Aww. I can work with any of these parameters. <laughs> I'll take it. Acceptable is a very high level of praise for a type skeptic. <laughs> This is actually a very big difference between a gradual type system and a strong type system. Oh, yeah. Um, I've become a big believer over my career now that gradual is kind of the way to go. I, I, the, the strict checking and forcible uh, checking I've found to just get in your way most of the time. But the gradual nature where you can sprinkle types at your interface boundaries, at the things that you like, want to guarantee, and you don't have to put them wherever, like in the middle of the code, you don't have to declare your variables as certain types or whatever. You can give the type checker as much as you want to give it, and you get back as much as you have given it. 
So you can find the good sweet spot in your app. Uh, you're not forced to go all the way like in, in Java or Swift or one of these kind of things. Yeah, absolutely. So hopefully we found a sweet spot. I'm, I'm glad to hear, uh, <laughs> glad to hear it's, it's acceptable. So I kind of see Sorbet really belonging as part of the Ruby core as a optional gradual type check. Have you guys explored that or gone down that route? Or is this really just a separate add-on that you guys prefer to maintain? Great question. I don't know where that's going to go. We have monthly meetings with the Ruby core community, um, with the, the core contributors, and we talk to them about type systems and, and what's going to be going on. So we'll see how far that goes. The announcements that we did make at Ruby Kaigi this year is that Ruby 3 will have the standard library typed. Actually, we're going to take most of the sorbet annotations that we've put together through the standard library that we actually inherited from RDL. It's kind of come, it's come a long way to get these standard library annotations, but those will be published as officially part of the standard library. And we're also working on a, uh, a side format to, to publish uh, type annotations that sorbet will also consume. So the jury is a little out on how we're going to integrate well with Ruby. We would love to. Uh, we're very happy to help, help the core community of Ruby here. We just have to see how it's going to evolve. And so what is Sorbet written in? Is it written as a C extension that's a gem that you just install? Or is it pure Ruby code? There's two components to Sorbet. One is the runtime type system, and that is just pure Ruby. It gives you uh, a couple of classes called like T colon colon sig, and you just extend that in your object, and now you have the sig method, and you can put signatures on all of your, your methods in order to annotate them. So that's all pure Ruby. That's just, you can go read the source code. It's kind of fun. There's a bunch of nice performance optimizations in there. You can go check out about not doing allocations and like trying to be as lean as possible for static or for runtime type checking. That's all in Ruby. And then the static component is all written in C17. So that thing is, uh, you know, a standard, basically the front end for a compiler. It's a lexer, a parser, an abstract syntax tree walker, uh, a namer, a resolver, and a CFG analysis, and then a type checker. So it, it does the, the normal pipeline as if you were to like compile the code, but just stops at type checking kind of thing. So that's all in C++. Again, it's open source. Go check it out. It's a, but, but it, it, and then it is shipped as a compiled binary inside of a gem. So we have a gem okay. called sorbet-static, I think. I think that's the name of it that we ended up with. And that's a compiled C++ binary inside the gem. And then you interface with it with some bash scripts and some Ruby scripts called SRB. So you call like SRBTC, and that will uh, type check your current code using the C++ binary that we shipped inside the gem. Awesome. So we chose gems as the distribution mechanism. We thought that would be most familiar for the Ruby community, and you just like you know bundle install your little gem and uh, put it in your in your gem file, and it, it, that's how you can integrate with Sorbet instead of like downloading a binary or apt get install or like like sidestepping all of this. We we use the gems as a distribution mechanism. And what is like the general reception been from the community? We've been super happy. I think we have over a hundred contributors now. To Sorbet, 100 different contributors. We only open sourced a couple months ago. So I've been very happy with this, the, the uptake that we've been having. But the most happy, Sorbet is, is really useful at scale, right? That's in a small project, it's helpful. It's nice to do a little like one person, two person thing to get your types and get your, your conditions right. But it a like large org is where it shines. So I'm super pleased with all of our large, our, our other large companies that have been helping us build it. They built a lot of the open source portions themselves without us. The whole like sorbet-typed repository, 
we have a repository for um, annotations for gems that have not yet published their own sorbet annotations. So we have like a central thing, like definitely typed for the for the JavaScript community. We have a central one called sorbet typed. Coinbase built the whole thing. They, they just set it all up and like built all the scripts and, and gave it to us. The plugin system so that you can write a like a, a plugin so that your DSL is understood by the static type checker. That was all built by a, a collaboration between Shopify and Coinbase. So a bunch of our big companies that use Ruby around the area, our, our parser was given to us by GitHub as they were working on uh, a similar type of project. So the, the big contributors have, have been from the big companies and we're very excited that, that they're adopting Sorbet themselves. I don't want to publish any of their numbers. I don't know which ones are public or not, mm-hmm. but I've been very happy with the uptake uh, through both the big companies and the little, little ones too. Awesome. So let's say if you have a class that you are doing the gradual type checking on with Sorbet, what would be the canonical way of letting the developer know that, hey, this failed the type check. So they have it going at runtime. Yeah, so uh, the best form is using our editor integrations. Um, Those, unfortunately, haven't gotten open source yet, but we have an LSP plugin. There's a language server protocol thing that editors all support. So we have a backend for it. We're just polishing it. Should open source hopefully soon. And that's the best. So you're just typing away, and all of a sudden, a little red squiggly appears under your function call, and it says, you should have passed an integer. You're passing a string. Right, that is the best integration. The second best is on the command line. Uh, when you're done coding at a, when you're at a good stopping point, you run SRBTC on the command line, and it prints out a little message to you to the same effect, telling you, you know, here's the. It puts a little squiggle under it, says here's where the code was and why we should be an integer and why you think you're passing a string. It just explains all the type system to you. And then the last line of defense is your company sets up a, a CI check, similar to like your lint rule failures or stuff like that. Just run it in continuous integration when you do your git push, and that will tell you any of your type errors as well. So we do all three of these at Stripe, and, and we've found that the, the integrations uh, work at all levels. Like p- Pushing people down to the editor is by far the best. We try to drive our editor adoption as much as possible, but you know, the, catching it at all is really important. So we integrate at all three points. Awesome. Yeah, and you can see a really good example of this if you go to sorbet.run, which I think is really, really cool. Um, <laughs> that was actually one of my favorite playground. hack projects that I've ever built. <laughs> no, it's super cool. I love it. And awesome. it kind of gives you an example of what's, what you might see in your terminal, I assume. Yeah, sorbet.run, exactly. It actually is literally running our editor code. So if you, you'll see an editor on the left, and it'll put little red squigglies and stuff. And if you hover over it, it tells you your thing. That's literally running VS Code. VS Code's all written in JavaScript. It can run in your browser too. So that is what it would feel like to be on the editor. And then on the right-hand side, we are running the CLI version. So that's what you'll see on the command line. So you get to see both integrations directly there. Funny story about Sorbet.run. We built that on the airplane to the conference where we are announcing Sorbet. We are flying out to Japan, and we had an 11-hour flight. <laughs> So we kind of, the three of us, uh, Dimitri, Nelson, and myself, kind of decided who's going to build what component, how we're going to fit it up. And Nelson went and worked on Perf and figured out why it wasn't compiling. Dimitri built the like integration for how mscripten compiles work. And I went and built all the JavaScript front ends to, to hook it all up. And we, we got off the airplane and it turned out the whole thing worked. So that was, that was our biggest 11-hour hackathon that we had on the airplane on the way to Japan. That's awesome. Well, is there anything else that we should know about Sorbet? Hmm. Lots. I mean, what would you like to know? The important stuff is go to sorbet.org if you're interested in trying it out. So that has a bunch of the documentation and a couple examples. As you mentioned, sorbet.run. 
is our little playground. So you can play with it there, see what it's like. And go check it out on GitHub. There's links across sorbet.org, across the top, to our GitHub repos. Check out the source. Give us some feedback. Um, the easiest way to contribute is to add type annotations to any gems you maintain or you use. If you maintain, make a little RBI directory inside your gem and publish your annotations so that other people can consume them. And if you use a bunch of gems that aren't maintained, that aren't uh, publishing their annotations yet, uh, you can either send them a pull request and, and get them to have them, please, or contribute to the sorbet-typed repository and let's make a shared, shared repository of all the gem annotations just so when you call into random gem functions, sorbet can understand all of your type type signatures and type calls and, and catch any errors you're making. So I think that's the easiest way to get involved if you're interested, but please just go use the gem. That, that's the best thing you can do for us. Hopefully we can help. Today's sponsor is Datadog, a monitoring and analytics platform for cloud scale infrastructure, applications, and logs. Datadog integrates seamlessly with more than 350 technologies so you can track every layer of your complex microservice architecture all in one place. Distributed tracing for Ruby applications and APM provide end-to-end visibility into requests wherever they go, across hosts, containers, and service boundaries. With rich dashboards, algorithmic alerts, and collaboration tools, Datadog provides your team with the tools they need to quickly troubleshoot and optimize modern applications. See for yourself. Start a 14-day free trial today by visiting DTDG, that's Datadog without the A's and O's, DTDG.co slash Ruby Rogues, and Datadog will send you a free t-shirt. So I have a question. If you're working with engineers who, let's say, are very set in their Ruby ways, like they like the flexibility of Ruby, they don't mind the fact that you might get nil here or there, how do you convince them that like we all, I think we all can, we all know what the benefits of using a type checker are. But I feel like some people are very, they don't like it because it feels like they are getting slowed down or they're getting caught up in nuance. So how do you convince a team that this is the choice, this is the right thing to do, and this will improve the quality of what you can give to your customers? Great question. But we had to deal with this challenge at Stripe as well. Not everyone is on the same page once we launched Sorbet. The best way to do this is just through gradual type systems. Don't force you to do it. So one part of the code base can be just strict and just locked down and like feel like Java when you're over there. Uh, and one of them can just be you know as flexible and prototypey over off on the side, uh, whatever you would like to be. So that is totally acceptable, and and we are okay with this at Stripe. We don't force everyone to go in. But then when you are working in your little uh, prototype area and not checking any of your things, and then all of a sudden you make a method call into like a, a core component and the editor puts a little squiggle and tells you, hey, you're calling this core method wrong. You get a, like a little aha moment. You're like, whoa, like if only I would put a couple of annotations in, I too can have this on my code. So it's, it's mostly just by showing people the benefits and, and having them use, having them call into the, the strong kernel. We ourselves type check the core of our code. We, we went to all the core abstractions that are used a lot and added type annotations. And then we're leaving the product code, the stuff closer to the boundary to most of our other engineers to take care of. And they just have to see the value as they're doing it. And most have come over. Like our type checking is very well covered inside the code base. Um, I think 70% of our calls to methods are known statically. So we know that this function call is being called on this type and uh, past these parameters. So we fully understand the type signatures of about 70% of our calls, which means that a lot of the code base is, at least a lot of the important part of the code base has type signatures. But again, you don't have to put it everywhere. 
right? You don't want to. If you're just prototyping and just like going to be throwaway and whatever, like not putting strong type signatures when you don't really know what's going to be passed is totally fine. Just go for it. So what I'm hearing is if you're not type checking your classes or methods, then your application is just a prototype. <laughs> oh man, there Whoa, it is. I'm throwing shade. <laughs> there it is. There's the mic drop. <laughs> yeah, I uh I'm I hope this doesn't go go too broadly at my company. Might get in a bit of trouble. <laughs> <laughs> I think that's a good way to word it though, that gradually including it, adding it more and more, but focusing initially on like the core logic, I think definitely sounds like a good way to increase that adoption. And then, yeah, just slowly working your way outward. Yeah, so we work out. We also work a little bit inward as well. So like we type check the entrance functions, like the, you know, when the curl request first comes in and all the parameters are exploded out for you, uh, that part's all type checked as well. So we're kind of like vice gripping the code um, from the bottom up and from the top down in both directions. But we, we believe a little bit at Sorbet that on the Sorbet team that we, that annotating is good, right? Like writing these things down, it's, forced documentation and it's correct documentation there's no way it can drift because it's checked it, it's it, it's executed so we think that's the best form of documentation and we actually encourage this as, as like we want this we didn't go the scala route right the person who wrote dotty the the new scala compiler for his phd thesis is actually one of the founding members of the sorbet team so he's very familiar with scala and the inference where you don't have to write your type signatures it's all figured out for you automatically we chose not to do that because we think that writing it down is actually a good thing it, just the action at a distance is is going to be a problem so we could have opted yeah. for magical types, where it's just all figured out from the standard library and just kind of inferred across everything. Um, but we've chosen that, that actually writing your types is a helpful feature, not a, yeah. not a bug. Yeah. I've heard a lot of people refer like, oh, Ruby is self-documenting. You could just read it and know exactly what it's doing. But at the same time, I've looked at some Ruby code and been like, I, I don't know what this is doing. It makes <laughs> literally no sense. So I feel like this is just a nice way to further add to the fact that Ruby is very readable and very understandable by looking at it and by adding types on top of that, you only increase that factor and that appeal in the language. Yep, that's our hope. Honestly, I, I kind of love coding in Ruby with Sorbet. I didn't know Ruby when I joined Stripe. I, I learned it to, to be an engineer at the company, but I've, I've come to love it. It's, it's a great situation to have this readable, nice, easy language with a great object model and a, a pretty good standard library and uh, being able to add types on the side with static checking just as icing on the cake makes it, makes it super nice for me to work in. So within the editor, where you get the red squigglies, that's a LSP, right? Correct. That's running. Correct. So do you guys also have like a more IDE kind of feel to it where when you were calling a method that is type checked, that it'll say the first parameter needs to be an integer or the second parameter needs to be a string? Absolutely. Uh, if you go, go try it in sorbet.run. It, it's all there. If you like, type a method call and open a parenthesis, it'll tell you the type signature of the, the method that you need to call in. There's also find all references. So you can click and say, who calls my function? Uh, there's jump to definition. It's not one of these guests where it's like, oh, we found this string somewhere in another class. We think it might be the foo method that you're talking about. We know from the type system that you're literally calling foo on this class so we can jump you to the right spot. So we have all the direct integrations with VS Code that, that they support through LSP. 
that's awesome. the way you can expose your survey. I mean, it's and not it's it, not like IntelliJ or something, right? There, we don't have the strong refactoring tools yet, but yes, they're coming. They're coming. And is that extension available in the marketplace for VS Code now, or is it? Uh, no, not yet. Sadly, uh, you could kind of fake it together if you want to. If any, if any enterprising listener would like to go throw it together. All the code is there, uh, but we haven't polished it. We don't have the user experience that we quite want yet. So we've, we've launched it internally at Stripe. We have over 100 people using it daily, and we're polishing it internally, making sure it's, it's good and ready for the community, and then we'll open source it. So awesome. no, it's not on the store yet. Yeah. Mostly because we want to do a similar thing that we did for Sorbet. Sorbet, we, had, we were available like a year ago. Uh, we had it launched at Stripe a year ago, but it wasn't great. It was like... It was clunky and didn't have standard library annotations for everything. And like you ran into a lot of foot guns. So we wanted to polish and polish and grow and grow and grow. And then as soon as it was a good product, we, we open sourced it last April or June. I don't remember what the month it was. But like that kind of thing is what we're doing for the editors. We're polishing, getting a good product, and then we'll put it in the store. Awesome. So other than the extension for the editors, what's the roadmap for Sorbet? What do you guys have planned for the future? Mm, uh, great question. I have, I have a couple of fun things. So we're going to do some type system work, right? So there, there's a bunch of things in the type system that, that aren't really uh, there yet that would be nice to have. So like exhaustivity checks, right? If you write a switch statement, uh, did you write all the case statements that you had to? Right, that kind of thing. Um, and like if you accidentally grow your enumeration, find me all the switch statements I have to go update. Right, like find me where I have to go add case statements, that kind of stuff. Exhaustivity checks is a really good feature, so we're adding those right now. Sealed classes is a good one, so you can say that your class is final. Please don't extend me, and then you can do a lot of neat type system things if you know that a class is final and sealed. So a bunch of like stuff in the type range. We have some new types uh, coming down, so opaque types, right? Like like your password is a different type than a string. But at runtime, it's literally a string. But you don't want to pass it to like like string cat or any of the like stringy functions. You want it to be a different type from the type system. So opaque types are coming down the pipeline. So those kind of things are we're going to be working on. And then uh, a couple other projects that we're going to be using Sorbet for. The, the most important one is editors. That's, that's going to be our biggest focus. We're going to push hard on that. And then we're going to see if we can do some other stuff uh, using the Sorbet infrastructure to, to make it even better. But that, that we'll talk about at a later date. And so with having a type system in your Ruby classes, and let's say if you're just not working on a Rails application, just a Ruby project or something, that's going to get you one step closer to being able to have a, a compiler for that Ruby class. Do you guys have that in your roadmap at all? I, I will. Uh, we'll see. As I said earlier, as I probably alluded to, Sorbet is the front end to a compiler, basically. right? We do yep. compile down to a control flow graph. Um, and it only has like seven nodes and stuff. So uh, we could experiment with something in this space. It's a, it's a big project in order to get this kind of thing done, right? To, to move down oh, to yeah. a compiler level. And there's a couple of ways to do it. Like, for example, I worked at Facebook uh, on Hack. And the type checker and the compiler were actually totally different code bases for a very, very long time. They, they serve different needs. So this would be a big heavy lift if we, if we took it on. But um, as you have uh, astutely noticed, there is a possibility in the future for this. Yeah, because I mean, if you want to hit Ruby three by three, having a compiled Ruby class is definitely going to be a better way to get there, or a way. To yep, it's it is one way to is one way to get there. Exactly right. Um, it's it's going to be a different feel. So like 
if you had a, comp- a pre-compiler, it, it wouldn't feel as Ruby-ish. So there's a lot of UX work that you have to do. Actually, doing the technical work to get like a single function compiled is not a terrible amount of work. But um, uh, like getting the UX right so that it feels Ruby-ish and good is, is a huge lift. But if any enterprising yeah. people, if, uh, <laughs> feel, feel free to, to take on the Sorbet control flow graph. You type dash P CFG and you get the control flow graph for your whole program. Compile that to bytecode. Yeah, I remember there was a project. I don't think it's maintained anymore, but it was called Okra, which created a one-click Ruby application. So it basically compiled your Ruby classes. So I used it way back in the day to create Windows services that would actually run as a Windows service. And it was just a compiled executable. But the way they did it was basically have the Ruby interpreter bundled into the executable with your Ruby code. And then it just kind of executed it like that. So it wasn't a real compiler. It was kind of like a faux compiler. Yep. Yeah. That's that's not a yeah. Uh, in that that would just be like glue code where you're writing a little wrapper to compile on the platform as you run it. Um, yeah. That that would not be a thing that you would do with Sorbet. Well, is there anything else we want to cover? Hmm. Let me see. Let me see if I had a list of talking points. I think we've covered a good set, other than my call to please please call out. Oh. Oh. I wanted. Uh, do you guys care about like? Other comparisons, like the the in the Python community or in JavaScript, do you, a lot of your listeners cross language barriers, or is is this a strong uh, Ruby set? We should stick to that. I think we cross barriers. I cross barriers. So okay. So then, if you're if you're into the you know Python world, MyPy is a very similar project, and uh, if you're into the JavaScript world, TypeScript and Flow are both very very similar. And so we we draw a lot of inspiration in these directions. From, from these kind of things. But it's funny, when we started the project, the, the three of us, the, the Sorbet founders, went and sat down with Guido and Yuka the, at Dropbox, the, the guys working on MyPy, the, the Python compiler. And I was dead set on building Sorbet in Ruby. I'm like, our core contributors are going to be Rubyists, and I want them to be able to code for Sorbet and come in and help us out. And I would love if they could use the Ruby code to, to code for us. And like, I think it'll be a lower barrier to entry. It'll be great um, for them to help out. And I sat down with Guido and Luca and I said, hey, uh, what do you regret about MyPy the most? And they're like writing it in Python. <laughs> and I kind of sat there, I'm like, wait, what? Why? It's like, well, <laughs> number one, uh, it's slow, right? Like it's an interpreted language and takes like 10 minutes to type check the Dropbox code base or something. So you don't get the iterative. You can't get in-editor support. You can't get a lot of the, the niceties that, that you could get with a faster language. And two... The contributors just didn't come. Like, like a type checker is a hard thing. It's, it's a hard thing to write and grok and get your head around. It's, the, it's not the language that's the barrier. It's, it's the media. It's, it's what you're coding that's the hard thing. So they, they didn't attract the, the same number of contributors that, that they had originally hoped for. So I was like, all right, I guess I will get off my high horse and we will go to C++. Dimitri, you win. And uh, this is how we're going to do survey. So I was very, very happy that they, they gave us some time and gave us some experience from them running a similar project for us to learn from. That's yeah, awesome. That, Fun that's really interesting. I looked at TypeScript and Flow real quick and TypeScript is 100% written in TypeScript, but Flow is mostly OCaml. <laughs> so Flow grew directly out of Hack. 
So all of Hack, the PHP one, was written in OCaml because the founding members were all French, and uh, that's the language you code if you're French. <laughs> and uh, so, so that was what Hack type checker was written in, and then Flow was a direct descendant from that because we had a lot of JavaScript at Facebook, and we wanted to type check that. So it was a separate project. You can write TypeScript in JavaScript or in TypeScript now. It's it's a self a self thing now because V8 is so damn good. Like V8, the, the runtime engine for JavaScript is just phenomenal. It is it is the best runtime uh, out there right now, and it's only like half the speed of C. So there's only a two x slowdown, and you happily will pay that in order to have the, the niceties in that direction. So writing that as a self one is fine. Um, Ruby is just you know an order of magnitude less than than that. It's an interpreted language, right? It's it's a different shape. There's no JIT. There's like we're working on it. But uh, it's just not at the level of V8 yet. So the self-hosting is just not going to be tenable, or wasn't tenable for us when we were starting the project two years ago. Yeah, it'd be nice. <laughs> I, I, I'm a big fan of V8. They, they did a fabulous job. Yep. So from a person who formerly worked at Facebook, you could probably say it now, what are your opinions on React? Oh, wow. A uh, huge fan. I, I love React. Maybe I shouldn't say that, judging by Andrew's uh, uh, face. <laughs> uh, I sat next to the React team for quite a bit, and we used it. It grew out of a, uh, a thing that we had at Facebook called XHP, which was like XML inside PHP, where we like had a bunch of components and found that building component libraries was actually a nice way to, to build up a large website. And then we kind of ported that over to JavaScript, and then the community took it, took it on. So compared to like, I don't know, I coded my startup in Angular, and it didn't feel nearly as good as, as coding in React at Facebook. I'd love to hear your opinions, though, Andrew. I'm laughing because every episode, Dave <laughs> or I brings up React oh, because no. we do not like it. <laughs> in the context of using it inside of a Rails application, I will add that caveat. Got it. That I have no familiarity with. How about this? We'll, we'll agree to disagree given that I have no context. <laughs> I have used React outside of Rails and outside of Ruby, and I have liked it much, much better, especially in terms of some of the other JavaScript frameworks, but using it inside of a Rails app is pain. It's oh, just pain and suffering. That's actually interesting to know. I'd love to find out why. Okay. Well, and I'm going to just take a shot at this as to why, because when you're writing a Rails application, you're mostly dealing with Ruby code. But then you just React, and all of a sudden, now you're writing in all JavaScript. So I think that that's the pain point where you're going from something beautiful to something less beautiful. But coming from the Facebook world, you're writing it in freaking PHP. Going over to something like JavaScript probably is a breath of fresh air. <laughs> the newer versions of PHP is a lot better, but you know it's still, you got the old PHP. That's kind of funny. Uh, yeah, we, we actually usually end up with like strong separation of roles. So you'll end up with like a bunch of people just publishing data and, and building the backend APIs and then a bunch of people doing the front-end stuff. So there's less cross-contamination and cross-movement at the size of company and with the role specialization. I guess similar with like a Rails app and a JavaScript app, right? You'll, you'll have the Rails component that is in charge of publishing the, the information to the JavaScript, and then the JavaScript takes it from there and, and does its own rendering. So maybe if you have less cross-contamination, it might feel a little more uh, sane. <laughs> yeah, I can get behind that. But having them very cross-contaminated is oh, yeah. not strong, good. Strong interconnects between two systems. Like I'm, I'm a big fan of you know, good fences make good neighbors. 
right? You want your interface boundaries to be clear and concise and, and correct. You don't want leaky abstractions where you have to pass data a couple of times back and forth and like all your code is kind of intermixed. No, no, separation of concerns. Yep. All right, Dave. So we checked off the, uh, we checked off talking about React today. <laughs> yep. Sure did. Yeah, we didn't hit Docker, but I think I think we're good. <laughs> All right. Well, if there's not anything else, yeah, I think okay. I think awesome. we're good. It was a pleasure meeting you. I appreciate you giving me the time to chat about this. Yeah. Well, Paul, if people want to find you online, where should they go? Uh, my name is thankfully very unique, Paul Tarjan, T-A-R-J-A-N. So a Google search will give you a lot about me. The social networks, as you, as you may, GitHub's, every, everything is, is on my website. You'll see links across everything. So maybe you can find me on the internet. Please do. Awesome. A few years ago at a JavaScript conference, I was approached by Nader Dabit. And you might know him for the React Native Radio podcast. He's also a developer evangelist for Amazon. And when he came to me, we had a conversation about React Native. And the thing that I love about React Native is that it's approachable, it's web technology, and it's cross-platform. And it makes a lot of things really easy for developers to jump in and do interesting things on mobile with JavaScript. So we've had this show now running for several years, React Native Radio, where we interview people about the React Native ecosystem, some of the things that are coming out in React and how they affect mobile, and other options that you have for mobile development. So if you're doing mobile development, you're doing it in JavaScript, you're looking for a good option, or maybe you're just trying to stay current with React Native, then go check out React Native Radio at reactnativeradio.com. Well, let's go ahead and move over to picks. Andrew, do you want to kick us off? Sure. So Nate couldn't be here. He's on vacation. But Nate wrote a really cool gem called Stimulus Reflex. It's basically a way to... It's sort of like Phoenix Live View where you can render your standard Rails template and then you use stimulus and action cable to invoke methods on the server, and the page automatically renders those updates without a full page refresh via DOM diffing. And so that's just way above my head. But this weekend, Nate and I sat down for about six hours, and we paired together to create the to-do MVC app that you guys may have seen before. And we built it in Rails with Stimulus Reflex, and it was about 200 lines of super clean, readable code, and it works great. So yeah, I'll include a link to both of those in the show notes, but I think it's pretty cool, and I'm looking now for ways to include this with some of the stimulus I'm writing. Awesome. All right, and I'll go ahead and jump in on the pick. So I've been working on a new project, and it's actually almost ready. I'm just putting some final touches on it, and it's called Pingverse. So be available at pingverse.com, which is not yet live. But the idea behind it is that it's a uptime monitoring. So you go in, create a site, create your health checks, and you'll get Slack, email, SMS notifications if your site ever goes down. So Pingdom was acquired by SolarWinds a while ago back in February, and they no longer offer a free plan. And I really wanted some kind of uptime monitoring. So I decided, well, I know how to program. So I went out and created my own. And I thought, you know, this might be a good, lightweight, very clean alternative that a lot of people may want. So I've actually am making it a subscription service. And it's probably going to beat out a lot of the competition's pricing, but it's just going to offer just the very basic what you need for uptime monitoring. So, Paul, do you want to jump in with picks? I think we've already spent an hour on my picks. 
<laughs> Sorbet.org is what I'm here to push. I don't have any strong open source pieces that I'm other, working on other than this. This is my main focus. Awesome. Well, Paul, it was a great pleasure to meet you and talk with you today. Yeah, as you as well. I appreciate you giving me the time for this and, and thank you for hosting. All right. Well, we'll go ahead and wrap it up. We'll talk to you all later. Bye. Bye. Bandwidth for this segment is provided by Cashfly, the world's fastest CDN. Deliver your content fast with Cashfly. Visit C-A-C-H-E-F-L-Y dot com to learn more.